Welcome to The Lab, a Cornerstone Gundog Academy podcast focused on all things gun dogs, good times, and the great outdoors. I'm your host, Barton Ramsey. What's up, everyone? I am here with my buddy, and despite what most people suggest, not my brother, my brother from another mother, uh, <laughs> John Dunaway, aka Abstract Conformity, if you know him on Instagram. What's up, dude? Oh, man. Just hanging out for the evening. Glad we could make it happen. Yeah. So I've been trying to make this happen. I've actually got like three guys that I'm bouncing around trying to to do podcasts with, and I knew my chances were highest with you because you kind of run a schedule like me, you know, there's going to be an odd hour or two, especially late at night where you're, you're up and, and Adam and all that. So I appreciate you hopping on here with me. This is the first one that I've recorded in my new office, which is not even like really set up yet. So I asked you to do it and I was like, Oh shoot, I haven't even set the mic up or anything yet. So I've been blowing and going, <laughs> although you got hit with the the zoom update curse. Every time I go to zoom, it's like zoom now has to update. And yeah, anyway, I can't figure it out. I'm like, why well, I've got Wi-Fi. Why is it not doing it? I would like, I want to think I'm fairly tech savvy and then stuff like that happens. And I realize I know nothing. I'm like, okay. Yeah. Well, here we are, dude. Um, middle of the summer. I've got a list of questions that I have written down. We might cover some of them or most of them, or we might just go totally different direction. We'll just see, uh, how it goes. I was thinking today just to provide some sort of historical context. And I can't really remember how we met. I remember our mutual friend, Brian Mallett told me, yep. you got to meet this guy in Houston. You would really like him. He's just like you. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> He's like you, but not. And then he said, if you go look him up on Instagram, if you had a mustache, he would be like your twin. <laughs> and I was like, all right, well, I don't know about all that, but I don't remember exactly how we met. Oh, it's funny. I totally do. It was like a first date. Um, you came to Texas to be with Brian. I think you are going for, oh, well, it's for Texas Teal. Yeah. Anyways, you're going to go hunt with Brian. And I hunt, you know, on the east side of town and he hunts on the west side of town. And y'all met over at Oyster Bayou or El Capitan Hunt. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we linked that up. Morgan, who like kind right. of the, was supposed to come and we sent a text and he's like, Is it Wait, when does Teal's? Yes. I'm like, yeah. What are you? You're like telling people you're this big duck hunter and you don't even know when Teal season opened. Man, what a letdown. So y'all were there. Funny enough, I, I mean, we had never met in person, honestly. And I've seen photos, right? We had talked, but I had never like, I'm six, two. What are you? Six, six. Yeah. I'm six, five. Yeah. Yeah. And I got out of the truck, came over and I remember red comes running over. I was like, Oh, that dog looks so much larger in photos than he really is. Like stature yeah. wise. Yeah. And then I looked at you and I was like, you're much larger than you look like in photos. <laughs> Red was definitely smaller than people thought he was from videos and photos. He was like 58 pounds soaking wet. Not a big yeah, one. I remember Nixon that was, now. I remember yeah, we hooked a, it all up and Brian was like, hey, we got to carve out part of the trip to go over to this this club and hunt. And that's actually the first the first question I have on here with you is, I would love to know because I don't necessarily know a ton of the story. And some of the things I'm going to ask you, I do know. But the reason I wanted you on here is I want other people to hear. But tell me about your hunting background and the region that you hunt in and maybe some of the the history at Oyster Bayou. Yeah. So my dad's side of the family is from right in this area, right? Like the San Jack River, Galveston Bay on the outskirts of Houston. And so... Both sides of his family all hunted all that stuff. I mean, for multiple eras, you know, like it's cool to hear those stories, but at the, for another time, anyways, my dad got me into it uh, around 12 or 13, got on like a garbage, garbage lease and sergeant. And then our family hunted out in the Bay out there, all public stuff. And that's where I got my first start. And one of the first duck hunts I can remember, we hunted out in the Bay in a little square blind. And it was so cold. I had these Hodgman waders in the old Hodgman canvas boots. 
and it was so cold that the laces literally froze standing up. Dang. You know, he was like, you want to go? I was like, no, no, I'm good. You know, like <laughs> the dumb Tough young kid. <laughs> it's yeah, rare so, to be that cold down there. And I will say I did that thing down in the Bay with blue Delta jeans two years ago. And they had that, yes. that deal. And we took airboats out on the Bay. And that's the only time in, in my recent memory that I can remember truly like, I was like, I'm, I'm done. I can't get warm. The airboat ride was so cold. I was hugging Cedar. Just like, I think I'm, I think I might actually just wimp out and start crying here. I'm so cold, <laughs> man. That old stuff. Like you read these old books about like Indians and you know, the early explorers and stuff. They talk about these blue northers. Yeah. It's just this temperature drop. You can't even deal with. Yeah. And I've hunted up, up in Nebraska and, you know, like 17 degrees in Kansas when it was, I remember it was 11. And it's nowhere as cold as when that nope. blue northern hits on that coast. It is different. nasty. It's different. Yeah. People will say, oh, yeah, it's easy to say that. No, it's different. I've, I've yeah. been in some cold weather. That's that down there is just different. So that region, yeah. the east side of Houston, yes. there's a lot of history there. Isn't that where Gunner did the one of the limited editions? Uh, was it the Anawak? I can't remember what they called it. Yeah, they called it the Anawak. We did that blue that mirrors what that water looks like if you have an aerial perspective. Yep. And they did an incredible job telling the story of the history over there, you know, just where we hunt and everything that has gone through there. Yeah. And so if you go back, like the book, 100 Years of Texas Duck Hunting, and they had these wild stories. There was a guy named Forrest McNair, was a guide over there. And there are these three big lakes. And they talk about that they would shoot 30,000 canvas backs off of this one little lake. And when I say a little lake, like it's not that big. I'll have to show you on a map. And the only reason people are like, oh, that's all hearsay. But they've got the records of how many barrels they shipped because they were market hunting them. Mm. So they know they know how many ducks they're putting in a barrel and how many barrels they put on the train to send them to market. And it was such a big deal that right the Chesapeake Bay those guys that were hunting up there, market hunting canvas backs and selling them like the Waldorf Astoria that was famed for making the roasted canvas back. They started writing these uh, newspaper articles like, Oh, don't take ducks from Texas. That's disgusting. You know, the ducks from Chesapeake Bay are so much better. And you can read this in all these books and that's Dang. how many there were. Yeah. And so to even think of taking 30,000 ducks off of yeah. one lake, one species mm. is mind blowing of how many there's so much is to they were shooting tundra swans down here the last one was shot uh, i want to say like 1920 ish you gotta confirm that it's between 1917 and 1929 remember those numbers but like tundra swans yeah down there actively migrated down here yeah that's insane are there still cans down there do you still have canvas backs very very rarely yeah they are right. they are in the vicinity, but yeah, it's not yeah. a population. God, the, yeah. I, part of getting into all this for me and meeting people from all over the country through Cornerstone, through Southern Oak, through all of it has been just. I didn't grow up duck hunting, so in my eyes, like there were there was duck hunting in the Mississippi Delta. I knew there was duck hunting like up in Chesapeake, like you know from what I'd read and whatnot. And then of course, Arkansas. And then I remember sure. when I took my first trip to Kansas duck hunting and all my, all my deer hunting buddies like, you're going to Kansas to duck hunt. And I was like, yeah, I heard it's great. You know? And I had <laughs> sold a dog to a guy that was like, if you want to kill a lot of ducks, you need to come to Kansas. And then I just kept meeting people. I remember the first time I sold a dog to a guy in the Houston area. He was like, yeah, we smoke ducks. And I was like in Houston, Texas, you know, like I just, I didn't, I never knew, <laughs> never thought much about it. Uh, same thing when I sold uh, the, my first dog to a client in California. Um, oh, yeah. And he was like, yeah, we other than Stuttgart County, Arkansas, we're like the second highest mallards per hunter killed in America. And I was like, no way, dude. You live in California. Like, that's not true. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> right. I looked it up and he was right. And my eyes have been open to see all, not just the what happens around the country, but like, how much rich waterfowl history there is all around and where, where you guys hunt is one of the coolest and it's really cool. So Orchard Bayou, it's a club where your own group 
the El Capitan Club, you guys have memberships there, or at least some of you do, right? I don't, I don't really know how that whole process works, but Orchard Bayou is obviously rich in history in that area. Yeah, so Gene Campbell owns a place. He's been running since 1974 there. So you can imagine everything that he's seen through the eras of he started like he came back from Vietnam young kid and was doing all that. That's now part of the national, um, Anahuac refuge. Right. And he yeah. was hunting all that stuff. And he still shows me Google maps. He's like, Oh, this whole, you know, in, yeah. in the season of 78, and he tells you these crazy stories and he can remember years, you know, anybody that hunts actively, you've got that story mm-hmm. that becomes a milestone. So yeah, to listen to him, hear how the migrations have changed, how that environment has changed, the people that have come and gone through there. I mean, from everything from the market hunting days to where we are now, it's wild history. Yeah. Yeah. And there's uh, one of the things he talked about was just how much more concrete is on the aerial map view of the area, like how much is built up, you know, as Houston is pushed out. Um I don't know if it was him or one of the other older members that was there that was just explaining how back in the day there weren't nearly as many big highways. The cities hadn't moved out there and it's sort of choked out some of the migration in that area. At least that's what I understood from them to say. Yeah. And there's a huge agriculture. So if you like a hundred years of Texas duck hunting, they talk about originally there was no rice farming or anything going on. And so these birds migrated ducks, geese, tundra swans, to the black marsh and they came down to live in that, to eat all that salt grass. There was a lot of wild celery and that's why the canvas backs were in that specific three lakes over there. Mm. And it was just rich in natural vegetation. And so they would go all the way down until they hit the coast, right? Kind of flew off to the Gulf. We're like, okay, too far back up. And that's where they wintered. Mm. And that was natural. Yeah. Same thing on the West side of Houston. And then the Katy Prairie, right? A little different. And then agriculture comes in, they start turning it into rice farming. The birds learn and adapt to eat that. And then they're just like hanging out. It's like why you can look at the graphs of where the snow geese were and you you can watch even till now, watch as rice populations have shifted West Eagle Lake, you know, like the goose capital of the world. And you can see it, it goes there. 70s, 80s, 90s, and it shifts and it keeps going east and it gets into Louisiana. And then now it's going up again into Arkansas and the birds moved with it. Yeah, that's wild. They, yeah. Just just insane. So, uh, Oyster Bayou, Gene, they've, those guys have been there obviously a long time. You guys hunt right next to that refuge, right? So that's where we went. We weren't, I mean, we were just right down the road from it. Yeah. So they've got some different stuff that day. You, Brian, and I, we hunted north north of the road in some rice fields and the refuge was directly south of us and then that was that last year or the season before when you oh. Raggio, and morgan all got together yeah that was um what I, what I remember about that hunt was it was the first time i hunted rio okay so i want to say it may have been early last season or the season before i can't remember was it teal no, no, no. It was no, we were season. we were hunting big ducks because we killed all different sorts of stuff. So yeah, yeah. It was the end of the. I just got that pintail back from that hunt, actually. Yeah, the last man. like. Good so and like, that property. So when Gene started hunting, there was a family that owned all that stuff, and when the old man passed away, he donated it to the refuge. It became the refuge, and the daughters have kept, you know huge tracks of it that so where we hunted we were on the west side of the refuge but the only thing that delineates the difference is you know a little uh post fence you know somewhere out in the marsh that's right that's that's the place i really remember uh and what's super unique is like we got into like a bay fishing boat and went Mm -hmm. through whatever those canals are i don't even know I mean, what, how long is that ride? 10, 12, 15 minute boat ride into, yeah. uh, on that one, did we take another boat or we walk after that? I think at some point. Yeah. So we drove from the lodge to the refuge in the refuge. We hopped in the bay boat and then it's like a 15, 20 minute hooked up wide open in the dark, you know, down 
actual oyster by you. And then you cut into where the property is, nose in there, walk up the levee, get into the mud boat, and then run up into that yeah salt marsh. Into the salt marsh. And then you're essentially on like a little island of grass in a marsh yeah. with a pit blind. How long has that pit blind been there, you think? Oh, geez. I have to confirm with him, but I'm pretty sure he was shooting it in the 80s. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> sick, too. Dog box on each side. Uh, yep. Kind of like a, it's separated into like three different boxes or maybe four, but each one yeah, holds four. each one holds two guys really comfortably. Dog over there and plenty of space. Cover is really nice. And you guys have decoys out permanently, right? I mean, they're huge spread yeah. out there. Yeah. I mean, when I started hunting there, it was like around 2011. And I couldn't believe showing up and being like, wait, what's that on the water? I'm like, that's the decoys. What are you talking about? It's like, why are there like 800 decoys and who yeah. put these out this morning? They're like, yeah. no, these live here every yeah. day. It, <laughs> that goes against everything that I had grown up doing. Yep. I mean, they don't, they don't move them. They don't do anything. You know? It is there, <laughs> man. It was, it was, it was every time I've been down there, it's truly an amazing experience and just so different, you know, so different. Um, tell me about Nixon. Tell everybody about Nixon. So the, the old man, uh, the old man, I've gotten a hunt yeah. with him several times. I've seen, I've seen him in action and, uh, yeah. T- tell us about when you got him and his training and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So remember we had a, another yellow lab that had good lineages and everything and terrible, terrible retriever. Like just didn't have it way too rambunctious. Couldn't control her temper or anything. And I was public land hunting back then. Dude. And I just all up and down the coast every single day. And I told Kim's like came home one day and she almost got shot. She broke. She ran out in front of a guy, a buddy, you know, almost a low shot. It's like, that's the end of it. So remember taking Kim to the gym, and having a discussion, she said, get a dog. Like, let's get a new dog. Like, okay, cool. And I randomly, and I, to this day, I couldn't tell you what the website was. I was just Googling stuff, looking for mm-hmm. a dog. And I had been asking my buddy's trainer for one, and they didn't have anything. So I ran on this, landed on a random link. I clicked this guy. He's got British labs. And he's like, hey, I've got two male, yellow males left. Like, cool. Well, uh, I'll be there in about five hours. <laughs> Kim gets out of the gym. She's like, Hey, what are we going to do the rest of the day? We didn't have kids or anything back then. Right. And I said, Oh, we're going to drive up to like Dallas. I found this puppy. He's like, Oh my God. And then the next thing on the way there, I called the trainer to let him know. I was like, Hey, I'm going to get this puppy. And I mean, good old boy, you know, don't buy this $400 dog. And I was like, something about it. Just, I don't know. I'm going to get this. I was like, don't buy the $400 dog. I'm not going to train it, which became like a whole joke. Right. So we go, we get him. I had bought water dog and I followed it to the T, you know, like get him at eight weeks, bring him home on a lead, sit, stay, you know, and built all that up by 12 weeks. I had him on a training table in my backyard doing overs. Yeah. Um, I could, I could get him to run up the ramp to the table. One whistle, peep, sit, over peep 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 three he'd come back to the middle and people were like that's nonsense he didn't do it i'm like i still have videos of it it's a timestamp too yeah i know exactly when he was born i proved you it's 12 weeks old and uh yeah i took him till 16 weeks we were on a tiny like little baseball drill by that point a little baseball diamond mm-hmm. backs backs and overs and i was using a fence line in this neighborhood we were living in to learn how to push him further overs because yeah. he couldn't come off of it. And that was the extent of like getting further than this. I'm going to mess this up. It was force fetch time. So I sent him to the trainer. Uh, yeah. Oakwood Kennel is the name of it. Ron Frydenberg. And he took that dog, ran him through over the years and got, you know, his HRCH. And I was going to sea back then. So I'd be gone yeah. for four months and it worked really well. So like I left at 16 weeks. I sent him. There he would live for four months. And then when I came home, I'd go over like, hey, what are you doing with him? What can I do? Cool. And run the most drills that I was capable of. Yep. And then, yeah, and then started hunting him. I remember my trainer was like, don't hunt him this year. 
and he had 800 retrieves the first season. And I went back and like, that $400 Doug's amazing. He's like, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll see next year. This is a fluke. Like, it's not a fluke, man. Um, and about when he was about three, I remember going to pick him up one time because I would send him to get tuned up, especially before right. season or if I was on the ship. And I went to go pick him up. And here come all the dogs running across the field, almost like a SOK look, you know, mm-hmm. like you have the dog to go play. And here comes Ron in side by side. And Nixon is sitting in the front seat while all the other dogs are running across the field, chasing him. <laughs> and I was like, what is this? The $400 dog. Yeah. And he literally, he had a nick, uh, nickname. He's like, man, this is Nickel Man. He, he brought it everywhere with me. I'm like, he goes from the dog I'm told not to buy to, you know, the teacher's pet. So I love it. I love it. Well, yes. I've seen him hunt. He's definitely a special dog. And he's honestly, um, he's made it in the blind a lot longer than most dogs as far as just durability and able to hunt, you know, longevity of their life. I mean, how old is he now? He, he'll be 12 next month. Yeah. So last year he hunted at 11. That's, that's not easy. You don't see a ton of dogs getting that, especially with you guys. I mean, for those that, that haven't been there, you're hunting in a marsh. It's, either swim water or lunge water. Yep. Pretty muddy bottom, you know, not definitely not a hard bottom. Um, and you guys have some retrieves that sail out. I mean, look, one of the, one of the scariest retrieves I ever had was with you with red, uh, Nixon. And we we had a blind retrieve, remember? And it was like, it was not oh, even yeah. fair to the dog and you had Nixon out there and I was like, I'm about to eye wipe this guy. And, uh, and <laughs> for those that don't know in England, if you, if you're at a field trial and a dog fails to find a bird, the next dog gets to go. And if that dog finds it, it's called an eye wipe. And the first dog is out of the trial. I have seen it happen with they'll, they'll send up to four dogs and I've seen the fourth one find it. And if the fourth one doesn't find it, the judges have to go look for it. And if they find it, all four dogs are out. I have seen a oh, field trial wow. end that way. There were only four dogs left. They all went out. That was the end of it. Oh man. No placements. <laughs> um, after two days anyway. So I was like, I'm about to just, we're just like having fun goofing off. And I was like, I'm about to, I wipe Nixon. And there was a patch of some type of grass. I mean, it was, a, I'm not going to say how far it was. It was a long way, long enough. That, it was a long, long enough that it's like, it's impressive just to get there. Yeah, And I was handling red and he was actually handling really well. And I would send him back and he would disappear for a second. And then he'd come out <laughs> and I put him in that cover. And to be honest, none of us really knew that teal could have hit and swam. Who knows? You know, yeah. who knows where it was? It wasn't there because the, both of those dogs would have found it. But right. I was like, man, why does he keep disappearing? And whoever we were with, your buddy that drove us Tim. out of there, Tim, he goes, yeah, there's a ditch right there. I was like, oh, yeah. And he goes, there's some big gators in that ditch, too. <laughs> and I was like, beep, 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 here, come here. Goes, Everybody loves you, Red. Don't die. You're like the perfect size for a gator snack, too. Like, just right. Oh, man. And, uh, man, that freaked me out because you guys have them. I, mean, I guess they're not in the marsh too, too much because the water's decently shallow out there, and, and especially in the cold season. But for teal season, I, I went hunting west of Houston with my buddy Kelton this last year. And when we got done hunting, he was like, you guys want to go kill some gators? And dude, in the second day we hunted, there was a like four foot alligator in, in the, the doorway to the blind. We had to shoot it oh, away. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, dude, what is this anyway? So that was a terrifying moment. I mean, for dogs, you guys, you guys have, I mean, long boat ride in a pit blind, massive amount of decoys. I was worried about that with Rio because he had never seen, but maybe three or four decoys in a pond, you know, there was hundreds, uh, motion decoys, long retrieves without a ton of like depth of field. You know, it's just a long way. Sure. Sure. You guys have some challenges for dogs. It's not necessarily an easy career picking up out there. Yeah. And especially in the marsh, man. I mean, if you get out of the water aspect, some of the different blinds that we have are smaller potholes. Right. And you sail them on the edge of that. It's like, that is dense marsh grass. And they yeah. get in it and keep bury themselves in it. I'm like, I don't know how the dog. And so like, that's one of the things with Nixon, you know, like when you have your own dog and you, that dog trusts me wholeheartedly the way I trust him. And so much to the point, I remember 
when he was younger and I would let one of the guys handle him and he would get out there and he'd be like, Pete, over, Pete, over. You know, I'm like, and I'll not say whose name it was, which guy, it was not Tim or Gene. And I was like, easy on the dog. And his Nixon has a very specific tail. When he is listening to me, it is big, long, slow, and he stops and he looks and he's like, just tell me what you need and I'm going to do it. Right. And so this guy being fast, but his tail, when he gets a scent, it gets short and it's real snappy. It's like, yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, and I can see it way out there. It's like, he's on the bird and he's trying to push him left. It's like, leave him the fuck alone. Excuse me. Leave him alone. Like he's going to the right. He is on it. That tail is on it. And I, I can tell like people are like, no, no, I think it's over there. I'm like, no. I know this dog. Yeah. And when he gets like that, he'll vanish in that grass. I was like, where is he? Like, look, tail is short. He's on a scent. Leave him alone. When he feels no longer that he can do it, he will pop back out of that grass. He will look across his pond at me and he will wait for another cast. Yeah. And it's been the greatest joy to do that with him. Oh man. It's so good. They actually call that tail action. And it is oh, okay. a technical is is technically a, a part of a dog's evaluation in field trials across the pond. Second time I've mentioned those, but he is a British lab. Like you'll hear the judges say, like that dog has a lovely tail action, and what they mean is mm. like when they get in the area of the fall and the nose turns on, that tail starts going fast, yes. you know, and drops and. Off, you know, it's just such a fast hunt and some dogs don't do that. They don't, it's like they, they have a big hunt or they just kind of have a slow hunt. But when you see one like Nixon, red was that way. I've had several dogs that way. My, my favorite dog I ever had like that was a, a female named Angie. And man, when they get into that heavy cover and you see the tail start, it's like, oh yeah, it's almost like playing the game hot or cold, right? They're like, I'm hot. <laughs> And yeah, yeah, they yeah. Just, I call them cover shredders, man. They just start shredding up. Like I know what's in here. And it's like when you lose your keys in the junk drawer and you're just ripping everything out. And, <laughs> dude, I love to see that. It's, it's a thing of beauty for sure. Um, yeah. And, and, and those, them, yeah, go ahead. And to see him like that, they instinctually will grid stuff. Mm. Like you watch him, you know, went through in the area. He's like, uh, he gets us in and he, goes back and forth and he tracks and he like moves back. You're like, dude, this is wild. Yeah. One, I, of, it's a, one of the uh, things I love about that is like what you said about like him coming back and looking for help. If he can't find it, the teamwork evaluation there, there, there are things about where people hunt that change the expectations of their dogs. Right. So like my, our buddy, Brad, he hunts up in Montana on a river and like, we were teaching his dog to take very straight lines in and out of the water. And he was like, I don't want that. <laughs> I need my dog to run way down this river, get ahead of the bird and cut it off. You know? And I was like, yes, we don't ever, we don't ever teach that. The dog's going to have to do it. You know, okay. That changes everything. Like you, you'll never see that taught for a hunt test or anything like that. And like for you guys, right. the level of just work and cover, knowing when to hunt, knowing when to look for help, that kind of stuff. It's, it's cool to see you develop that with your dog because it truly is like, the, the relationship is what dictates that like the trust that he has in you trust you have. And Hey, he's on it. Like if Nixon goes in there with his tail like that, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Like just let him hunt. That's uh, right. that's really fun to see. I like that. Um, so you mentioned being gone for months, everybody listens to this podcast. They got to hear about what you do. You have one of the coolest jobs in the world. So I want to talk about your job now and your previous job just a little bit. Uh, what is a ship pilot? Like what, 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 what does the term even mean? Yeah. I'm not an airline pilot. You know, <laughs> I don't fly planes. Everybody thinks that. Yeah. So all over the world, every major, even minor ports have pilots, which are a guide. Like if you ever think of what a pilot would be and we're local knowledge. So when a ship comes into a port, yeah, it's got a crew, it's got its own captain and everything. But they're at sea. They've never been in this water. They don't know the local language. They don't know the intricacies of it, even with a chart. I mean, inland waters change very, very quickly. So we board a ship. Uh, we become like their local guy, right? Local captain. And since 
ask for engine orders, how much speed I need out of it, how much rudder command, give them headings, where to point. And as we're steering them up and down the channel, uh, deal with communication with the local guys, whether it's another ship or tug and toes. And then we get close to the dock. Tugboats come over and then I tell them where to lash up and we do our thing, you know, dock and dock the ship. And then I go home and yeah. then they do cargo and everything. And when they're ready to leave, we show up again. Same thing. Shake hands. Give me a quick rundown. Dock and undock. And so before that, I went to sea for 10 years and I did what these guys are doing. I didn't have a, like, I wasn't a pilot. I went all over the world, get to see 35 countries but you get people, pilots, everywhere you go. And yeah. in that, I had, I was captain the last two years of it. And I had probably 10 dockings, undockings under my belt. Whether it was like West Africa and they were terrible at what they did. And so you like, you pretty much took over, you know. And now I think um, I'm like at 1,800 dockings. Jeez. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah. It, it was it was very confusing to me at first when you explained it. It makes a lot of sense now because you can definitely know, you know, all the maritime law and skills you need and, and how to, you know, captain a boat, sail all across the world. But having somebody with the in-depth knowledge of each port. I mean, if you're a captain of a ship, you said you went to 35 countries. There's no telling how many ports you went to. I mean, to expect that guy to know the intricacies of docking a boat at every one of those ports is is insane so it makes total sense that that each place has a, a captain or i guess a bunch of captains how many of you guys are there in the the houston fraternity uh yeah <laughs> currently we're around 95 of us yeah that's that's insane how many boats dock in houston per day on average so Houston, yeah houston's the number one port in the u.s by both by volume and by tonnage. And so we do on average right around 50, 50 to 55 ships a day. God, that's bizarre. That's crazy to think about. What's the Texas chicken? Uh, you've done your homework. No, you told me. Uh, that. Oh, okay. Not okay. only did you tell me about it, but my buddy Ryan from California, he's a, he's a pilot. He's a pilot in West Africa for a gas and oil company, but he pilots directly onto offshore docks. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. So I was telling him about you and he was like, yeah, those Houston pilots are nuts, man. And I was like, well, <laughs> my buddy is kind of nuts, but I don't, what do you mean? He was, and he was like, they got this thing they do. And I was like the Texas chicken. And he was like, yeah. And he was explaining it to me. I was like, yeah, I've heard about it. So what's the Texas <laughs> chicken? All right. So, a ship, right, when it gets in the water, it displaces the equivalent of its volume, right? So it's got to move water out of the way to keep itself floating. So imagine we have a, a big bay that's like 12 feet deep everywhere. And then we have a channel that's roughly 45 feet deep. So very, very shallow bay. And we have a long, tiny ditch. So that ship, as it's going up the channel, is pushing water all out of it. But also think that the bank, so the bank will push a ship off of it, right? So you can't get close to the bank. You need to be in the middle. But now you've got a ship going one direction and a ship coming the other direction head on. You don't want them to pass like two cars on a two-lane road because the bows are positive pressures and they'll push the ship away from each other. And then the bank will then push the ship off of the bank before it, people think they're going to run aground. They're not. More often not they will produce such a large cushion of water that it'll like, like shoot the ship off the bank. And so in order to make this safe to have two way traffic at all times, the size ships that we're moving, right? So we're in a 500 and a 530 foot channel. It's being expanded to 700 feet, but currently 530 feet. And we'll meet two wide bodies, right? Like 280 foot combined beam in a channel of that size. What you do is you come at each other, you, make a course diversion away from each other, let the positive pressures push the bowels, but you're in control of this, right? And by the time you get over by the bank, they push themselves back off the bank and the, the stern and the bow of each other kind of, they sniff it, right? So the stern's a negative pressure and the bow's a positive. So it literally wants to do this dance where they go apart and then they line back up. And if 
you were to try to take these two big ships and run them at each other, but both get over in the bank, there's no telling. Do you have enough rudder power to hold it over there? Or could you get close and all of a sudden it shears off? And what's it going to hit? It's going to hit the other ship full of crude or chemicals or you're going to have a catastrophic issue. Yeah. So no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you do it so many times. Oh, when I was a deputy training here, this guy had asked me, he's like, any, you scare yourself today? Like, no. You haven't scared yourself the last couple of days? Like, no. He goes, let me explain to you. You're like a murder detective now. You've seen so many dead bodies that it doesn't even scare you anymore. I'm like, oh, that's a good way to put it. Because every day, right, I get on a ship and it makes them super uncomfortable. Like, oh, yeah. we're so close. Like, I'm like, it's not a big deal. Like, it's going to be just fine. We do this every day. I'm going to do this probably 15 times in the next hour and a half. So sit yeah. back, relax. That's so crazy. Yeah. The Texas chicken. I mean, those ships are massive. So how wide and long are the big ones that you guys dock? Yeah. The biggest ones we're bringing in right now, we brought a container ship, uh, 1105 feet by 150 foot beam. So 150 feet wide. That's yeah. By 1,105 feet long. And they're a little over a hundred thousand gross tons God. yeah dude i have a tough time getting my wakeboard boat on the trailer sometimes. <laughs> so if there's a little bit of wind i'm like daggum where's john i need somebody uh, to help me no that's that's truly amazing um so oh I'll, I'll tell you a funny one when uh, i came to your house and we went to camp ramsey you know yeah i i had a super aeronauti as you know back in the day and they're right-handed fixed pitch propellers right that's what a ship is so when you go ahead, when you go astern, the bow wants to go to starboard. But come to find out, in my era of selling a ski boat, your ski boat is a left-handed propeller. And so I had set myself up. You went to go get the trailer or something. I set myself up to back on it, expect the bow would go to starboard, and I would spin around and leave that little, like a little inlet we were in. Mm-hmm. And it kept it kept going the other way. I was like, "What is wrong with this stupid boat? It won't do what I want." <laughs> Until you realize that it's it's nearly impossible to move them around because you'll hear like Bethany before she really understood how it worked or people they're like why don't you just turn it around I'm like listen dude <laughs> it's not what you think until now because now you can get upgraded stern thrusters and you can just and I hear people all the time they're like what a waste and I'm like no nah, you should drive one it's it's, it's truly <laughs> unbelievable it's nice it's like having tugboats you know it's like oh I'll just pull yeah. it right over there. Pretty awesome. So when you were uh, a captain, I mean, you went all around the world. I'd love for people to hear just a couple snippets of that. I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but like, what's, I mean, you said you're on a ship for four months. I mean, what is that like being at sea that long? Oh man. It can change a lot depending on the crew that you have and where you're going, you know, uh, crew morale is huge, you know, so, but you've got a work day and it's uh, 24 hours a day. That ship is running. It doesn't stop. There are people up at all hours working. And so generally the captain, you're just around all day, right? You've got stuff to do, but you're not standing and watch. You've got three guys that are doing navigational watches on the bridge. But let's go back. Like when I wasn't a captain, you would, you'd work for four hours. You would go to sleep for eight hours. You'd work for another four hours and then probably do like some overtime for four hours and then go back to sleep and wake up and do it all over again. And a ship is constantly like, right? Like the elements of the sea are constantly trying to destroy a ship. Mm. So whether it's salted salt, taking over the paint and rust and stuff wanting to corrode stuff has to be greased and things have to be checked because it freezes up and gears got to be stowed properly. Like, it's a never-ending project. And you think that ships used to have these huge crews, you know, uh, and now the ship has a crew of like 14 people. Dang. That's not a lot of people. And there's like three people out there during the day trying to take care of everything. It is not a lot of people at all. So you're just, yeah, every day is something new. And that's what I enjoyed the most was that you woke up every day, and I take out my little notebook and my pen and sit up there and be like, all right, what are we going to tackle today? You know, where we are and I have to break it down and consider because you got to plan everything. Like once yeah. you leave, it, you know, 
all the lights fade away and you're out in the ocean all by yourself, like you can't just Amazon like, oh, I need this part or oh, I need these guys to come help. You know, like man, you had email for a while. I, like we'd have email two times a week, and you're like, you're all by your lonesome. Whatever you ordered and you have on board, you better figure it out. And if that's not going to fix it, you better come up with another plan. Be pretty crafty, man. So it sounds like a really fun adventure that I'm not sure I'd want to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like really cool. Yeah, for it's sure. cool. I love hearing your stories. Um, I mean, yeah, I know you have a bunch of them, but yeah. it's cool to hear some of the things that happen all across the world. And, and I'm glad for now that you're home with your work schedule being what it is where you've got some extra time. You're going to need that time. Uh, last thing I want to cover. You've got a pup coming very soon. Oh. So pumped. There's been a little bit of a journey figuring that out, but it worked out really well. Uh, so your pup is currently in Texas, close to you with Cousin Stone, as I call him. He has a lot of names. The, my favorite name is Lowbird. Remember Low he shot that guy? Yeah, he shot a guy dove hunting. It's a good story for another day, but... I'll just tell it now because it's too good. So yeah, we because where I'm going dove hunting, it's one of my best friends named Ben, and I hunt with him. Okay. He's the one that took me to shoot that deer, and uh, yeah, my my one and only buck. So he, yeah. uh, we're hunting, and Stone Stone was in a decent spot and had killed like two birds, probably been through a box of shells. And <laughs> I'm hunting in my spot, and Ben was like, "Hey, I'm I'm limited out, so tell Stone to come over here to my fields." And it's just like you can see it just across this little road, maybe 150 yards from me, maybe 100 yards. Stone goes over there, and I couldn't really see the rest of that field. But I see at one point, Stone gets up, and he goes jogging across the field, like out of sight. And I was like, oh, maybe maybe Stone like shot a, a bird, and his dog broke, and now he wants to make the dog sit, give him a denied retrieve, because that's what I do. Like, hey, you break? I'm going to go get the bird. You sit here. Anyway, I thought oh, that. Okay. Wally comes back over there, and... uh I'm like, how'd it go? And he's like, oh, good, man. I'm limited out. Dogs did good. Stone shot a guy. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like, like he peppered him. He was like, oh, he's bleeding. <laughs> and I was like, oh, oh man. 30 minutes later, Stone comes back over and I'm like, hey, dude, how'd it go? And he was like, great. And I was like, did you shoot a guy? And he was like, well, I, I, I kind of, you know, I peppered him a little bit. I, was like, <laughs> I said, was he bleeding? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, where? And he was like, well, like his uh, lip and his neck and his stomach. Jeez. And I was like, what? And I was like, how far away were you from this guy? And he was like, I don't know, like 50 yards. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, man, so apparently Stone had shot over that way a few times and didn't realize the field had some drop in it. And he thought he was. Yeah. And he just followed a bird and Ben, oh. my buddy was like 150 yards from stone and saw it happen. And as it happened, he goes low bird and oh, no. shot the guy. And so the guy, the caretaker of the property comes up later and he's like, I learned something new today. I was like, what's that? And he was like, if you shoot a guy, it's best to give him about 10 minutes or so before you go over there and check on him. <laughs> Stone waited. So I was going to find the guy. I was like, where is this guy? I need to go apologize because my little cousin shot him. And uh, they were like, oh, he's at the hospital. <laughs> he had to go get oh, the pellets man. taken out. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, Stone. Love you much. We hammered him. <laughs> low bird. Yeah. Yeah. Low bird. <laughs> That's the guy that I've entrusted with your dog right now. <laughs> He's, he's very trustworthy. Uh, hadn't shot anyone since then, I don't think. But um, yeah, your puppy has made the journey from Madisonville, Kentucky to my place here in Mississippi and then now to Texas and is awaiting you to pick him up. I don't even know when. When are you going? Uh, I will pick him up like September 4th. There's, we should put it on record. We were ready to bring the dog home. But I'm going to Alaska for 10 days here in like, in about 10 days, I'm going to Alaska for 10 days. Yep. And Kim, like, I'm not taking the puppy that we yeah. just get, and you're not going to go to Alaska and go fishing. <laughs> so fair, fair, Kim. Was, yeah, I was like, pardon. I will do whatever I have to for Stone to keep, please keep the dog for like 10 extra days. Well, what happened was we had availability on the 
Ozzy and Libby litter. And yeah. you really like Ozzy, as you should. I'm going to bring him out there. He'll be there for for the, our last subject. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, uh, I'm going to bring Ozzy out and you'll get to meet him. But Libby is, she's one of, of four girls we've had that are out of the same mother in Ireland. And they've all produced like some of the best puppies I've seen. And Libby's a rock star, HRCH title, a little hot. Like she's a little hotter than most of the dogs you see in the British lab world. But after being around Nixon and talking to you like that's kind of your style, like you want one that's got the pep, you know, and goes yeah. hard. So, yeah, I'm super. What have you, did you pick a name? I can't remember. Um, Should we unveil it here? Disc- we're, no, we're not because disclose I, it yet? we're not going to disclose it. We're going to hold it. All right. We'll we hold, thought, we'll, we're pretty sure we have it. The kids are pretty sold. I'm sold. There's still a little wavering. So we want to make sure. Well, <laughs> I'm very excited for you to get your pup and train your pup. Nixon's an awesome dog. My first dog, Maggie, she was awesome. I, I read water dog. I didn't have a clue what I was doing with Maggie. I, I had a pro trainer kind of helping me. That was a mentor, but like, I just kind of made it up. You know, I was like, Hey, I saw this drill on the YouTube. And, uh, <laughs> Now, when I got my second one, uh, and it's different with you because you've had one dog for so long, but the second one, you're like, oh, I've, you've learned a lot, right? It'll it'll be really fun. And you got kids that can throw dummies for you and uh, yeah. a schedule that works for you to be able to work them. I'm, I'm super excited to, to see you have him and for him to be around. Uh, we mentioned one thing, PB. That's the last thing I want to cover because for those of you out here that are listening to this, like it is such an awesome experience and i'm gonna let john talk about it and it's probably not completely like you couldn't replicate it necessarily to the t but the the idea you can replicate and the overall overarching theme is doable and it's it could be done with waterfowl it could be done in lots of different ways it's with dove hunting obviously with you but man i turned down the invite I think three years in a row, man, it just didn't work out. I was going to Texas teal, which I love shout out to JJ. Um, but I actually told Bethany last year, I was like, Hey, I think if I turn down this invite, I might not get (laughs) reinvited. I think. And so (laughs) you were on the chopping block. Yeah. So I went last year and had, I had the best time. So as we wrap this up, tell us about, what is PB? What's the deal? How'd it come about? There's some cool history there. And uh, what are you expecting this year? Yeah. Um, my, so like my, all my family, like my mom and my brother and I, my dad, we spent a lot of time in South Padre. They fished like crazy. We were always down there. Well, back then, white wing, there was a special white wing season that opened before dove season. And it was just in the valley. And so my dad would hunt at this farm where we all hunt. And yeah, he so he took me one year. And I remember rolling into this place and just like, man, these people have coolers and they're sitting under like umbrellas and everything so incredibly chill. And so I was just captivated by it, right? Like, this is hunting. Like, it's so relaxed. Fast forward. I was in college. I decided I wanted to kind of replicate that. I'd seen an article in Garden and Gun about this fun dove hunt. So I brought stuff to make Palomas. I picked up some meat to do fajitas, grilled in the field. Like, huh. A couple of years later, I brought six guys. We did it. We thought we had a ball. We kept hearing this music. We're like, man, these people have the most incredible system. It sounds just like a mariachi band. It's on the other side of this tree line. And one of the guys, like, no, they actually have mariachi band. There is a full mariachi band right over there. And that was the catalyst. It's like, we are doing this again, and we're going to have a mariachi band, and we're always going to have a mariachi band. And from there, it was just like, we invited, like, I don't know, 12 to 20 guys. And then it just went to, like, 25, 30, growing. I don't. Honestly, I don't know how it's become what it is, except the element that remains is the people. The people are what makes it. And that's what you said. 
And what I've always told people, it's an invite only. People would get kind of upset that it was that way. Like, how do we get in? Like, well, guess what? This is what I want you to understand is that you might not be able to get it, but you can do this with your friends. Like yes. I found a random field and I had just a handful of guys and we did it. And then every year we added something that just seemed like it was a little more exciting. But what makes the whole, like we could get rid of all of it. It's the relationships that come out of it. It's seeing these people that were all about to embark on hunting season and work and sends you all different ways. And everybody takes the time. That's what truly blows me away. The people come from all over the country at this stage. This little place in South Texas to hunt. And we're, I mean, you, Morgan, BC and I, we have that video. Like We were literally crying, laughing that <laughs> Sunday night. I don't like, know that I've had more fun in my life, <laughs> honestly. So it's yeah, a kickoff it's, for me. It's the season kickoff. I mean, I got duff season here, teal, but like I get to travel all around and hunt with great people. And it's so much oh, fun. Yeah. I'm 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 I know that I'm incredibly fortunate, you know, as far as hunting goes. And it's truly like the the blessing of this job for me has been the relationships that I get to have all winter long. And then even in the summer. I mean, you you came to Camp Ramsey, man. Went on the boat. Um yeah. Kids but, love it. Man, the people that are there. So for those of you that that were listening along, it's in when when you say South Texas, dude, I had an international retrieve. That was my one. Yeah. I stood on the Rio Grande. All right. That's right. And yeah, shot a dove that was flying over and landed on the opposite side of the river, which is 100% Mexico. And I said Cedar to go get it. And I, Aaron Davis recorded the whole thing. I was like, you're now an international retriever, dude. Didn't even have his passport or nothing. And oh, I mean, you awesome. were on, and what's crazy is, so we go down there. We've got this group of people that have been invited. You guys could replicate this with your friends. Um, we dove hunt. We've we, we've you've rented out a part of this really awesome place that hosts dove hunters. It's like a pay per day, right? Like you got a day rate, exactly. Sunflowers. Uh, dove are everywhere. Um, and we can shoot both, right? We have morning and, and white wing dove, right? Isn't that right? That's that's correct. We're yeah. no longer shooting during the white wing season. Yeah. Um, but we have food in the field. We have coolers full of drinks in the field. We have a mariachi band. I don't say it as cool as you do, but I say it like people from Mississippi. Uh, we have a mariachi <laughs> band that played that I actually saw one of the dudes get smoked by a dove that BC shot. I mean, this bird <laughs> it hit him right in the leg. He kept on playing like it was nothing, dude. It was like a scene from Nacho Libre. And, uh, uh, and so we're out there. I mean, the dog work is tough because you can't, there's no depth of field in those sunflowers. There's no oh, distinguishing yeah. anything. It's rows of sunflowers. And little creeks and the river. But at nighttime, we're staying in a beach house on South Padre. And we can walk across the street to the beach. And there's a pool. And this year, the one you sent me is unbelievable. It was being built. I remember seeing where they were that empty lot. So I can't believe that they built that in this amount of time. So got to keep the dogs cool all day. Are we taking the pup? Is the pup going to go? Yeah, he's going to have to come. That's the best. <laughs> That's the we'll do father son pictures with old Ozzy out there. Oh, excellent! Yeah, Addison's we're, riding. We'll have to take him to the river, take a photo down by the river with him. I love that. <laughs> Addison's right. We're bringing Chevy. Um, hopefully, a bunch of fans. You know, it's hot. It's a really yeah. great, and you do an awesome job organizing it. You, you get a lot of, of credit there. Just, I mean, you, you're essentially like to organize that is it's a part time job, man. It's the, and I'm sure Kim helps in all that. It's it's a bunch. I mean, you've got a lot of things to line up. But for those of you listening, like find somewhere where you can go hunt like this and bring your friends and just add cool stuff to it. I mean, the food, that, someone to cook, um, you know, live music, which is awesome. Whatever it might be, it may be totally different in your region. But man, I'm I'm very fortunate to get to go. I, I can't wait to be there. It's uh, It'll be the first time that really I get to see all my buddies again. It's really like, hey, we're getting the gang back together before hunting season. Yeah, yeah. Man, it was uh, it was so much fun last year. We, we shot the mess out of Dove. I mean, they're everywhere. And look, yeah, it's- 
my fa- <laughs> my favorite memory is the international retrieve. But when we we cooked a big crawfish boil or a shrimp boil um, that yes. Sunday night, and the lady that runs the place, um, I don't remember her Bonnie. name. Bonnie, that's it. That's it. Because I thought blue bonnet. So Bonnie, there you go. Bonnie comes down, and she's like, "Y'all just shut the gate. <laughs> You're here late." <laughs> yeah. I started thinking like, "What gate?" And it, do you know what gate it is? It's the gate to America. That's what it is. It's the. <laughs> it's literally to, the border wall. It is the border wall. It's like, hey, <laughs> make sure the the gate shut. Like, don't let the cows out. You know, I'm like, wait, you talking about the the like the big gate? It is the yeah. The, the whole hunt happens behind the border wall. Like we are we were behind enemy lines over there. It was, man, it's, it was incredible. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I can't wait to be there. And I hope that this is encouraging to people out there listening who love to hunt, love to work dogs. Um, you know, Cornerstone, we do the members weekends. It's really fun. It's centered on dog training. We have food. We're, we're looking at expanding some of that at Southern Oak. I've done the summit. It's honestly a blast, but this involves a real hunt. And Dove hunting and or teal hunting and Texas teal is similar. Those guys at lifetime have, or heyday, excuse me. Those guys at heyday have an awesome system over there of doing something similar, bringing people in, but dove and teal, it's it's not as serious. Yeah. It's like, Oh, a teal just flew by. Who cares if you're hunting South Texas main season and a pintail flies and somebody's up talking and flares the bird. It's a big deal with teal season. It's like, Oh, we got 20 more coming behind it. You know, who cares? And everybody's, (laughs) It's like, hey, I got bit by too many mosquitoes. Y'all just want to call it, you know, and no one's really taking it that seriously. And so wherever it is for you guys out there, I encourage you to find a way to get your buddies together, make it a group thing or a family thing, whatever you want to do, figure yeah. out food logistics, because you can replicate a good bit of it. And it's one of the one of the best experiences of the year. In fact, it kind of stinks because you start the season off that way and you're like, I don't know how I'm on top of this. You know, I, I think it's <laughs> downhill from here, man. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, yeah, it's wild how it's become what it is. And and I want to say last year, because we had all this momentum going into it, and I started to feel terrible that I couldn't just let anybody and everybody come for that reason. Because if you lose control of that, like it could just, it would turn into something of that what it is not, right? So we decided to do a golden ticket and partnered with Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation. I'm like, you know what? If people get a membership during this time frame, we're going to let them draw. And some random person, we have no idea who they are, are going to get to come. And we're having such a great time. I was like, what could we possibly do to do something even better? Like, we're having an amazing time. And we raised just shy of 16000 bucks. Like, oh. And this year, we raised $35,000 that That's are nice. going to the state. Yeah, it's blows my mind and that's what i love is that hey you can go out there and have so much fun with your friends and you can even as it grows and you start to think of other stuff you can do good like this money's going to go to parks it's going to go to game wardens it's going to go for people that hike and fish and hunt whatever they want to take their family to go camping but that's uh yeah that's become a big thing to me like to see that we can do this do something good but obviously i spent a lot of time to make sure that the shenanigans are good for all of (laughs) y'all lots of shenanigans i love it south texas shenanigans that's as it is in fact uh when i was leaving the house all the time while ago bethany was like who are you doing a podcast with and i was like my maritime muchacho (laughs) 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 i'm gonna have to change you on my phone to to my maritime muchacho with south texas shenanigans below it um, oh, I love it. I can't wait, man. I'm excited to get your puppy to you. I'm excited to see it there. I'm excited for you to train the pup. Um, not that water dog is bad, but we've got some great videos out there. I've, I've got some stuff. stuff. Yeah. I mean, look, the puppy phase is going to be fun for you. I think following along, you're a systematic guy. You like to follow, you know, your, I know your personality. I think it's going to be really fun and we'll have to do a podcast in like 18 months and see how the pup's doing. And, Catch up and go from there. It'll be good. So anyway, man, I appreciate the time as per usual. And I know you got kids and probably got to go park some ships early in the morning. It's big ships. Yeah. For those of you who are having three o'clock. Yeah. Three in the morning. They're going to call me. It looks like around three o'clock to go to work. So dang it, boy. Yeah. You're yeah. 
I'll be sound asleep. Um, but for those of you on here that don't know John, it is Abstract Conformity on Instagram and El Capitan Hunt Club on Instagram is also uh, something he's running and affiliated with that is worth the follow. And uh, you guys check it out. He's got some cool stories on there about uh, big ships. And there's some awesome lessons from the sea in there that are always inspiring to me. Never lame, always cool. And uh, I appreciate what you do, man. I appreciate you hopping on and, and sharing a little bit with everybody. Man, it's been great to become friends with you. You know, family life, work life, dog stuff, all of it. So Camp it's a pleasure. That's it, man. It's awesome. <laughs> all right, dude. I enjoyed it. Y'all have a good one. Everybody, thanks for hey, listening. Man. We'll see you next time.